we're opening up John's Gospel. Um, how, about, uh, how about we just spend a moment now, we'll ask God to, to open us up so that we will be ready to receive uh, his word, that we'll uh, hear and uh, that we'll meet Jesus in this passage. Let, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for all these kids here. So good that we have them. So good that, the, that these little ones that you cared so much about are here. Lord, we pray that we would love them well and be totally cool with, um, with uh, the realities that, that come with kids and all the noises and the fun and that we'll have great joy in that. And Lord, we just pray that as, that as we hear your word, all of us, that we might meet you, that we might know what you're really like and that we might come to be able to trust you more than when we walked in the door, that we might know that we've really met God tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, we are in this, this Gospel of John. Uh, it's, um, if you think of John as a movie, the first bit is a bit like Lord of the Rings, we said, where you know, the, the voiceover sort of you know, sets the scene, uh, tells us what's happened in the past, but also what's about to happen. You know, that's that previously on Law and Order. I don't, can't do the sound. Um, but, but this is the context of an epic saga with a prophecy gu- guiding the path, and we know what's going to come. The one is going to come, and John doesn't keep us in suspense for very long. He's straight up like, it's Jesus, by the way, in case you're wondering. And we're in the wind there. Now, last week, the action part of the story began. John the Baptist fulfilled the same role for the people in his day as what that prologue does for us. He heralds us, gets us ready to know that Jesus is coming and that someone is going to come who's going to take our sins away. And then when Jesus does rock up, this Holy Spirit descends on him and remains on him. And John's like, this is the guy. This is the guy. And now... The guy's here. Jesus is starting his ministry. Things are happening. And so John sees Jesus again and the action starts because he says, again, this is the one we've been hoping for. The camera moves from John the Baptist over to Jesus. But the camera is actually coming from the eyes of the disciples. Some of the disciples who used to be following John, but now they're kind of caught in between. He used to follow this John guy, but John says follow the Jesus guy, but then that means I've got to leave but my previous teacher, that, what, what do I do? And they're awkwardly in that spot. And that's where we are. I want you to imagine you're a disciple, a guy who thought, man, this, Jesus, this John guy really gets God. He really, I feel like this guy's actually the, the pathway to God. And then he says, now I need you to go follow someone else. Because that's where we are. So we've got a couple of John's disciples and they take John's word. They follow its logical application. They leave him and start following Jesus. Now, in general, following in John's gospel means like a whole of life, devote yourself to this person kind of thing, put your trust in them and their teaching, but not always. Here it seems to mean walk around him behind him awkwardly like a lost puppy because Jesus is there. All of a sudden he notices these two guys following him. He's like, what are you doing? What do you want? But actually it's a powerful question, isn't it? Because you've come here to church and what do you want? a deep question as well. Now, in their response, they indicate that they want to move from the awkwardly walking around behind Jesus thing to follow him in the truest sense, because they actually say, where are you staying? Because wherever you're staying, that's where we want to be too. And so they, they come along and they actually stay with Jesus. Rabbi, we want to know where you're staying. We want to be with you. So they head towards a place where he's staying, spend the rest of the day with him from 4 p.m. onwards. So who, who were these guys? Well, we get info on one and not on the other. Now, this is how you know you've lost the family game of who became the most famous. Is anyone here the least in their f- children, you know, the list of families? Everyone, you got lawyers sort of like, or, uh, you know, g- CEOs of companies kind of siblings, and you're the, the little one. Verse 40, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two. Now, 
Andrew's actually in the story. Peter hasn't even appeared yet and he's already the reference point, right? You know you've lost the popularity contest here. But Andrew, who's Simon Peter, the great sort of original Peter of, of the Gospels fame, is one of the two. But of course, this gospel is the backstory for a set of very real public events. And people who were reading this gospel would actually have known Peter. So it makes sense that he's the reference point. Who is this Andrew? Well, he's Simon Peter's brother. But the point of having shared that is that the first thing that Andrew does is then go and find his more famous brother. Now, there's some translation difficulties that mean we're not sure when it happened. Like, it's hard to tell if it's the same day or the next day. But it's obvious that it's as soon as he could do it. He goes, gets Simon, says, right, we found the one. We have found the Messiah. And he brings him to Jesus. Now, as he does, we get a slightly curious incident. Did anyone else, as you were here listening to the reading, think some of those interactions are kind of awkward? Just slightly weird, things you wouldn't kind of expect. You're like someone says something and you're like, well, that wasn't the response I expected. Then someone responds to that and you're like, well, that doesn't make sense either. There's a few of those. And I think some of them are actually meant to be awkward. You see, when Andrew brings his brother Simon to Jesus, Jesus looks at him and says, you are Simon, son of John. How does he know that? We're not told. You will be called Cephas, which then translated from the Aramaic, which is what Jesus would have been speaking, is Peter. Why is this interesting? Well, lots of reasons. One of them is that Peter is anything but a rock. What do you know about Peter? Denies Jesus three times. Yeah, that's his most famous moment. Gets, gets, Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan, when he tries to stop Jesus from dying on the cross for people's sins. Like there's a few moments where he kind of doesn't get it right. More than one. There's a, there's a lot more than that. This is, this is the guy who his first instinct when he doesn't have any, any idea what to say is to say something. Okay. I relate to this man. Um, and yet, as we'll find out in chapter 2, Jesus knew what was in a man. And so it seems that here Jesus looks past Peter's very unrock-like behaviour and sees the man he will one day become. There's a mismatch between the name Jesus gives and his character. Now, that's actually important as the story goes on because there's more of that. All right. Now, have you noticed there's a few time markers in this as we've gone on through? It actually almost reads a bit like a diary. This happened, and then the next day this happened, and then it was 4 p.m., but then the next day this happened, and then the next... It's interesting. Even though John is the most stylized of the Gospels, you know, it uses words like life and truth and light and the way and darkness and the word, these big concepts, and everything in the action is wrapped around the big concepts. It's actually the most chronologically literal Gospel that we have. I don't know if you know it, but it's got the most accurate time markers of any of the four Gospels as far as we can tell. And in fact, the only reason we know Jesus' ministry lasted three years is because John actually keeps a record of the festivals he went to. And so we worked out that, okay, there's, actually, he went to these ones, this one, this one. Yep, well, he's got to have been at least three years. He's got three years' worth of festivals recorded. So it's actually kind of tempting to wonder who is that unnamed disciple who was hanging around with Andrew? Was it John himself, the author? Because he always plays, plays it low. There's always this shadowy disciple, like the one Jesus loved, or this unnamed disciple all the way through, and it might actually be him. Now, we don't know that's true. It's tempting to think that that's true. But it does make sense because so many of the things, like why is it four o'clock? Why is it four o'clock? It makes no difference to the story. It makes no difference to your theology. In fact, actually, there is a particular reading where they're like, oh, it might mean 12 o'clock because the Romans start their day at, at, at midnight and the Jews start their day at 6 a.m. at dawn in the morning. Maybe it means 12 o'clock. Maybe it means noon. And we don't know. And guess what? It doesn't change your theology. It doesn't matter. But the specifics mattered to John because he was there and 
He was there at that time of the day and he remembers. I wonder if that's part of it. Anyway, speculation aside, there is beautiful time exactness in John's gospel. Now, uh, the next day, Philip and Nathaniel. Oh, I'm just a little bit behind in my, uh, my slides. Jesus seeks out and finds another Bethsaida boy. These guys are all from Bethsaida, which basically means fish town, uh, if, you, uh, if you translate it. And uh, not sure why he sought out Philip in particular, um, but after Jesus calls him, Philip realises, okay, I'm onto something big here. Just like Andrew, the first thing that he did was go and find someone else to tell, particularly his mate Nathaniel. I found him. I found him. The one that Moses wrote about in the law, the one that the prophets wrote about. He, he, Philip realises this guy is covering, this guy is fulfilling scripture all over the shop. All right, well, who is it? You can imagine Nathaniel saying, Ah, oh, Jesus, he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel just about spits his cornflakes, Right? Like this is one of those beautiful human moments in Scripture. Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? Like this is a straight-talking bloke telling it like it is. What are you talking about? Nazareth is a whole. There is nothing good from there. Philip might as well have said, look, I found the Messiah. It's Jono from Glenorchy. I mean, like it's... Uh, sorry, I don't know if I can... I don't know if that's insulting to Glenorchy. I don't know if Glenorchy is the place you should choose for those sorts of... Launceston. All right, okay. Jono from Launceston. Sorry, I got... It. Pronunciation mixed up. Thank you. Um, so, so Nathaniel is utterly unconvinced by John from Launceston, right? And, and Philip plays this so very well. Because I don't know if you've ever tried to tell anyone about Jesus and found the other person completely unconvinced. But do you see what Philip does? He's just not defensive. He just doesn't care that Nathaniel's unconvinced. Because he's just spent time with Jesus. And he knows he's onto something. So he says, come see Doesn't need to convince him. Doesn't need to spend hours talking about the little nuances and hints that pointed him in that direction and hope that they convinced Nathaniel. He just says, no, no. This bloke from Nazareth, yeah, Joseph's kid, yeah. No, you just come, you just come and find out. Interesting. Now, I think there's something wise in that. This, he's just unconcerned that Nathaniel is unconvinced. And... It's interesting because Nathaniel's counter-argument is actually convincing. Nothing good comes from, sorry, not Launceston. Uh, nothing good comes from Nazareth. Because the Pharisees use that same thing again in John chapter 7. Look, look, in the, look, in the, look in the Old Testament, you'll see no prophet comes from Nazareth. But Philip's faith is simply in Jesus. All he does is try and get the two of them together. Now, look, I wonder if we should do more of that. Look, uh, I mean, apologetics, arguments about historicity, history, creation, etc. all that stuff, look, that's all good. I mean, I once had a guy come up to me and tell me that he'd become a Christian after a seminar on, you know, historical details and the, whether the gospel was, was good history and stuff like that. And then uh, and a, a couple of hours later, we chatted again and we realised that it was actually me who'd done the seminar. <laughs> it was really weird, quite chance, weird chance. So, look, I'm all for helping people to see that Jesus is real and to see who Jesus really is with all the tools we've got available. But I think that's all this guy does. I think that's all that happened when I gave the seminar, is that he realised, okay, Jesus is real, and I've got to face and do business with the real Jesus. And when he did, that's what changed him. I wonder if we can just do a little bit more, come and see. All right. Now, so far this passage has been cruising along slowly, just uh, talking about what people's, what, like pretty mundane things, I'm a long way behind, but now we get into hyperspeed, all right? This is like a light speed, just the spaceship cruiser's been going along and then all of a sudden, 
wow, that really worked. <laughs> Didn't even mean that to happen. It's fantastic. Um, because it started with Philip's statement to Nathaniel. Jesus is fulfilling everything. And now it gets deeper and deeper. Now, look, to get this, we're going to need a little bit of background info. A uh, little bit of background. Previously in the Bible, God made the world, but humans didn't trust God. So he lost that blessing and presence with God. And then God's great rescue plan for the world was to choose one particular group of people, a family. He chose a bloke named Abraham and he said, it's going to be your family. I'm going to rescue the world through you guys. Now, he had a son, Isaac, and he had a son, Jacob. And that Jacob guy, he was the first guy who really had like a family himself to branch out from. He was the guy who had the 12 sons who were the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jacob is, well, if Abraham's the great granddaddy and you know Moses, as we talked about last week, he was the man, he was the, the guy of action who did everything. Jacob is the dad. He is the father of the 12 tribes. Um, he is the, the patriarch who defined this nation. Um, and so Jacob is the guy that matters for us in terms of background to this story. If you get Jacob, you are going to get what happens here with Jesus and Nathaniel. Um, now I'm going to give you four things about Jacob. All right, Jacob's name, Jacob's lifestyle, his ladder, and his new name. Name, lifestyle, ladder, new name. Now Jacob's name means he grasps the heel, literally, which is apparently what he was doing when he came out of the womb, grasping his brother's heel. He was a twin, right? And it means so it literally means he pulls the leg. It means he was a liar. It means he was a deceiver. Like if you named your son Jacob thinking that it was a fine, upstanding biblical name, I'm really sorry for you. You've um, you picked an interesting one, right? Thank you, Jacob. Um, now, the second thing to know is that Jacob's lifestyle lived, not you, Jacob's lifestyle lived up to his name. One day his brother comes home from work and he is starving. And Jacob says, yeah, 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 I can work with this. Hey, you got the stew for you. Yummy stew, good stew. Can you sell me your birthright? I want to have all the rights as the older son. And his brother, his brother goes for this. It's a good scam. And so he gets the birthright. That's not all. Jacob's dad is blind as he gets older. So then later on, Jacob pretends to be his older brother Esau with his dad, tricks his dad into giving him Esau's blessing, the blessing of the firstborn. And when Esau gets home... When Esau gets home, I think I've got it here. What does he say? Esau says, isn't he rightly named Jacob? That liar. This is the second time he's taken advantage of me. He took my birthright and now he's taken my blessing. Not a cool dude. All right, so that's Jacob's character. Um, next thing. The crazy thing is Jacob's moral shortcomings, despite them, God actually blesses him. But how he does it is quite cool. Now, Annika, you, you're going to do a little extra bit of Bible work for us. So Annika's going to come and give us a little bit more background. Thank you so much. Um, he does this, though, in a really crazy way. Despite this guy being, like the Bible presents him as good for nothing, but he gets this blessing from God. Come on up. Give some... Oh, that's a really good idea. Is there a microphone that was used before that we could uh, grab a hold of? Ah, oh, Brad's man. Good on you. Uh, today I'll be reading from Genesis chapter 28, verse 11 to 17. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. 
He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will be spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob, woke, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Thank you so much. That was beautifully read. Well done, sister. Did you hear that? What, what happened in this in this vision, in this dream? Uh, Jacob was there when God ripped open the barrier between heaven and earth. This ladder appeared, and angels are going up and down. It's like there's like the, like a portal between universes. You know, this is what science fiction stuff is based on. Jacob, when when we when we hear the word Jacob, when we hear Israel. This is, this, is, this is what we sort of the Old Testament person's mind goes back to, these kind of stories. Now, the last thing you need to know about Jacob is his new name, because that wasn't the last time that Jacob had a divine encounter, and that's what this picture is behind me of. God blessed Jacob, but he went through a lot of struggles, and he did change as a person, but he never really stopped lying. He keeps on doing that right to the end, but he did change a little. And years later, Jacob's on his way to meet his brother again, and something weird happens. He finds himself in this surreal situation, wrestling, wrestling a man in the night. You kind of don't even know how it starts. It just, it just starts happening. And when that man leaves, he realises, that was God. But he doesn't leave without doing something for Jacob. Like Jesus did for Peter, God gives Jacob a new name. He says to him, you'll no longer be called Jacob. Still lies to his brother again in the next chapter, but you no longer call Jacob. I'm going to call you Israel because you have wrestled with God and with humans and you have overcome. Now, look, that is why I want you to understand that is why Israel to this day, to this day, is called Israel. Because God changed the name of this man, their patriarch, the father of the 12 tribes. So just have this in the back of your head, right? And we're going to, then we're going to go through the rest of the story. Jacob's name, deceiver, Jacob's lifestyle. Matches it. Jacob's ladder between earth and heaven, and Jacob's new name, Israel. This is the father of the nation of these people who are hearing these stories now. Now, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he says about Nathanael, hey, here is a true Israelite. This guy's truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. So now, with the back of your story, you're thinking, hold on, Israel like Israel. Okay, hold on. This is a descendant of the deceiver in whom there is no deceit. The second time in the story where there's a name that doesn't match the person. Now, um, we know we sorry. We heard with um, when Israel when uh, Nathaniel dismissed um, Nazareth and said that place is rubbish. We we, we realise he's a straight shooter. He's a, a talker of truth. And it seems like Nathaniel thinks actually this guy somehow knows something about me because he realises no, I am actually an honest man. And so he says, how do you know? How, how do you know me? 
Jesus says, well, I saw you sitting under the fig tree before Philip called you. And Nathanael says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Of course, right? (laughs) I saw you sitting under a tree. You're the king. I I don't know exactly why that is. And commentators have been making up reasons, you know, like that they guesses, that are guesses as to why they think Nathaniel thought he says that he saw me under the tree. He must be God. So some things are tricky, but what's clear is, number one, Jesus did have an insight into Nathaniel's character. And number two, when Jesus revealed how he knew that, Nathaniel was rocked. Right? It was an experience meeting Jesus for him. And the, the, the truth-speaking descendant of the deceiver was in no doubt. Now, if you're scratching your head to work, work that out, so am I. But Jesus' insight into Nathaniel's character was a big deal for him. And the funny thing is, is that Jesus was just as surprised as you in the next line, isn't he? He's like, hold on, what? I just told you that I saw you under the fig tree and you believe that I'm the Messiah because of that? You ain't seen nothing yet. We got lots more to go. I'll read this verse, last verse to you. Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on, not a ladder, but on the Son of Man. That's one of Jesus' favourite titles for himself. And you start to see the story come together. John shows us with a hundred different hints, Jesus fulfilling the story of Jacob, renaming mismatched names, a deceiving Israelite, a truth-telling one, Jacob who saw God face to face and live, and now Nathaniel has seen God face to face, the one who would bring life. And see, now we know what it really means. Just like Jacob realised that his vision of a ladder was a nexus between earth and heaven, that somehow God had visited him, and Nathaniel realised, this guy's not just a good teacher. Like, he's not just going to be a guy who's going to give me a good spiritual education and I'll pass on his morals to my kids and that will make life better. He's claiming to be a singularity in the space-time continuum. This guy's claiming to be the divine access between earth and heaven, between creator and creature. God the Son, come to show what God is truly like. He's the link. The one to go to if you want to know God. Now, this is first of all for the Israelites reading this story. For the, Israel, for the, for the Jews around in this day, it's not just an argument for Jesus' divinity. This is their history come to life. These aren't, like, it looks like I'm just reading two sort of novel stories and saying, hey, it's kind of interesting how these stories are the same. No, no, no. These guys have lived out that history for thousands of, a couple of thousand years before Jesus come. That stuff is embedded, permanent bedrock. That's just factual history. That's, that's my grandfather. That's where I came from. And Jesus becomes the fulfillment of that story, blowing their minds. And the people who saw this realised, man, something big is happening here. I met Jesus and everything's changed. And they wrote it down. That's what John is. Eyewitness testimony, people who wrote it down said, look, I want other people, other people have got to know this. Because if if this really is the one moment in history when God and man have met fully, everyone's got to know. That's what John's gospel is. So we're not far from the end. But if you want to access spiritual realities... Hear this, John says, you need to go to Jesus. He's the nexus between heaven and earth, the gateway between two worlds. If you feel like there's got to be something more to this world than your paycheck at the end of the week and then spending it on a Friday night at the pub, then you go, go to Jesus. 
If you think there's got to be more than atoms, go to Jesus. If you want something uh, that's ancient and authentic and with roots from the very origins of this world, you've got to go to Jesus. He's the guy. If you're exploring spirituality, meet Jesus. Now, if Nathaniel's right about that, it also means that the other thing that he said is right. It's not just that he is the ladder that, that brings heaven and earth together. It's also that he's the king of Israel. He's a king. You see, I think it's, it's really easy for me as a preacher to try and sort of say, hey, here's all the great things that you would get if you could just go to Jesus. Forgiveness of sins, his love for you is deep. Connection with God, how good would it be? Um, but I've I got to encourage you guys who are Christians, remember that we don't just follow Jesus because of the benefits. It's because it's right to. It's because he's your boss. It's because he's your king. It's because he made you and he owns you and, and, and you were made for him and he graciously loves you and forgives your sins and stuff. But like, you just, it's just, it's just, he's the king. Have you remembered his forgiveness but kind of forgotten his crown? All right, we're about to finish now. Now, look, as a preacher, it feels funny. I feel like I... I feel like I need to justify, well, I did when I was writing this, not, not right now. I feel like I need to justify what I've said because uh, I haven't said much more than a Sunday school teacher, have I? Go to Jesus. So I sort of feel like I need to reason you into it, to convince you, to, 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 to give proofs, angles, new ideas, something kind of, you know, you might not have heard before. Otherwise, how is this moving? I mean, haven't you heard this a hundred times before if you guys are Christians? And I mean, if you're, if you're totally unconvinced by Jesus, well, then there's no particular reason for you to trust what I'm saying anyway. So... Shouldn't I give you something more? So I was feeling kind of inadequate in, in, in writing this bit. I get to the end of writing the sermon and I'm like, it doesn't have, it doesn't have the thing in there that, you know, moves someone. And then I realised, oh, I was just talking to Mel about this. I'm in the same position as Philip. Right? Nathaniel said, this guy's got nothing for me. And Philip said, oh yeah, come see. See, Jesus Christ is God come to this earth to be the link between you and heaven, to connect you with God. He's the king. And my invitation now is actually not to listen to anything more I've got to say, but to come to him. So I'm going to invite the musos up. They're going to sort of be up on stage. Just, they're going to, we're all going to have a moment now, like just where you get to, to sit and, and pray. Talk to Jesus for a few minutes. Jacob's just going to pluck the guitar string so that there's you know, a little atmosphere and you don't hear my sniffly breathing or whatever else while you do it. But um, just going to pray in silence. Just give yourself a moment to go to Jesus. I'll invite you, come and see. Talk to him. Maybe you haven't prayed for a while. Come and see what it's like. Maybe you've never prayed. Come and see what Jesus is like. Maybe you spent time with Jesus this morning. You know him. You know it's good to go back. I'm just going to give us three minutes to talk to Jesus, do a little bit of business with him, and then we're going to share in the Lord's Supper together.